That's the sound of dozens of Indian Americans gathered outside the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. over the weekend to welcome India's prime minister, Narendra Modi. Yeah, we came here to invite Modi. Modi is coming to U.S., so we are all welcoming Modi. Yeah, but still we love India and we we love Modi and we want him to come back. We love Modi. Whatever it is, we love Modi. Modi will be arriving on Thursday for a lavish state dinner. It's his first visit like this to the U.S., and it's a big deal. This is an honor that only a few world leaders get. But not everyone is excited about this development. There's definitely tension there. This is The Post's India Bureau chief, Jerry Shi. If we were to look at uh, the nine years of Prime Minister Modi's rule, you know, we have seen an uptick in religious violence. We have seen um, an uptick of incidents involving Hindu vigilante groups um, issuing um, hate speech, calling for violence and and, and killing of Muslims. We have seen vigilante groups um, attack uh, Muslims for um, dating Hindu women. We've seen um, even uh, local governments bulldozing Muslim communities. And really, the list goes on. Before Modi was prime minister, the United States had actually banned him from visiting— for being seen as condoning riots in his home state in 2002 that left hundreds of Muslims dead. So why is President Biden rolling out the red carpet for him now? We have heard some of President Biden's uh, senior national security advisors, um, officials on the National Security Council, say that the U.S.-India relationship is the most um, important bilateral relationship uh, in the world. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Tuesday, June 20th. Today, why the United States is so eager to court India, in spite of its lighting down the ranks of democracy. Jerry spoke with my colleague Rhonda Colvin about what Modi's visit means for the U.S., India, and the world. I'll let Rhonda take it from here. So, Jerry, India is the world's largest democracy. Let's start talking about how democracy works there. Can you explain how the government is structured in India? Sure. So, uh, since independence in 1947, India has been, in by some metrics, one of the most uh, successful democracies in the world. It's maintained steady economic growth. Um, It has had... Uh, what are generally considered to be fair and free elections. It has had peaceful transfers of power. It's a country that, you know, many people would would even say that um, it's um, almost an unlikely success story for such a huge and diverse and, and, you know, some might say chaotic uh, country to be able to maintain this um, system of governance over the decades. Uh, That said, um, particularly in the last uh, decade or so uh, under Prime Minister Narendra Modi, uh, we have seen a steady rollback of uh, democratic institutions. You know, many international experts have uh, warned that India is backsliding dangerously um, into authoritarianism. When we talk about the Prime Minister Narendra Modi, What was his rise to power like, and how would you categorize him as a leader? I would call 
Modi a Hindu nationalist. So his uh, platform and that of his party has long been about promoting um, India's uh, sort of intrinsically Hindu nature. And of course, Hindus make up 85% or so of India's population. Um, and, you know, often their sort of political pitch comes down to we want to make a Hindu India great again um, after sort of centuries of oppression by foreign Muslim invaders and then later the the, the British Empire. Um, you know, we want to lead India to greatness uh, today um, and shed some of the secular foundations upon which the modern Indian Republic was founded in 1947. Um, they are also pro-business. Um, and Modi uh, personally is kind of a sort of an archetype of a populist uh, strongman. You know, he, of course, has elevated India's stature on the world stage. And to his credit, India's GDP has also continued to grow. And, and they often point to, you know, his economic uh, leadership So lots of world leaders, of course, visit the U.S. and visit the president. But Modi is getting a state dinner. This is a big honor. Why is this raising some eyebrows? I think what it comes down to is that when President Biden uh, was campaigning for president in 2020, uh, he promised that to counter rivals uh, such as China uh, and Russia, that he would build an alliance of democracies. He would strengthen U.S. ties with, you know, liberal, uh, like-minded countries around the world. Um, And since he's entered office, we have seen him, uh, I guess, you know, confront the realities of uh, geopolitics, you know. And then there is uh, Prime Minister Modi, who uh, two decades ago uh, was implicated for his role in Uh, what was essentially a pogrom in Western India that led to the deaths of hundreds, if not um, up to, some estimates put it at 2,000 Muslims in his uh, state of Gujarat, where he was the state chief minister. Gujarat is once again disposing of its dead, the ones that survived the flames of communal hatred unleashed after last Wednesday's horrific train massacre. Two days of madness followed. People burned alive or stabbed and lynched to death. And here we are more than 20 years later uh, in in the coming days, he will have a 21-gun salute uh, and be welcomed at the South Lawn of the White House. So it's been quite a turnaround um, uh, for uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, as well as President Biden. Yeah, it sort of feels like the two of them meeting, it's sort of like walking on diplomatic eggshells. Do you think that either one stands to gain more by the fact that they're both meeting together with all that you've just laid out there? I think this is a massive diplomatic coup for Prime Minister Modi. He has secured basically the third state dinner um, under the Biden administration. These are highly choreographed, um, sort of very significant diplomatic events. Uh, Foreign leaders can only be invited personally by the president. Uh, And I think it's it's only been uh, President Macron of France President Yoon of, of South Korea, who've gotten these invitations, right, in the last uh, in the last two and a half years. Uh, and so already you've seen pro-government uh, mainstream media um, who've sort of pointed to uh, the prime minister's visit um, and his schedule in the United States as a sign that, you know, once again, this is a leader that's really putting India on the map. He's being courted very heavily by the Biden administration. We've seen the, the, the newly 
installed ambassador to New Delhi, Eric Garcetti, the former LA mayor, just whacks about, uh, you know, Modi's leadership as a great leader, as somebody who's really guided India with great deafness and harmony. We've seen Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo praise him publicly as uh, the most popular leader in the world. Uh, you know, we've seen sort of a bevy of State Department and Defense Department officials really heap praise on on Prime Minister Modi, all, I think, you know, with quite transparently a view towards um, sort of, you know, wooing India to, to stand by the U.S. and the West against China, against Russia. For the Biden administration, it has quite clearly defined India as a crucial partner that it wants to woo at whatever the cost. After the break, Jerry and Rhonda get into why this relationship between the U.S. and India matters, not just for these two countries, but for the whole world. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So if we take a step back and look at the history, what have U.S.-India relations looked like? It's been a complicated history for sure. During the Cold War, of course, um, the the United States often sided with Pakistan, which is India's uh, arch rival and its neighbor, um, and as a result often drove uh, India into the arms of the Soviet Union. At a time when India has raised strong objections to U.S. supplying Pakistan with arms, External Affairs Minister has sent out another clear message. We have really a long-standing relationship with Russia, uh, a relationship that has certainly served our interests well for multiple decades. Western countries did not supply weapons to India. Uh, and in fact, saw a military dictatorship next to us as the preferred partner. There have been instances when the U.S. has been reluctant to give food to India when it's been um, starving under terrible famines. And as a result, I think there's a very deep-seated sort of, you know, distrust towards the United States and a a certain affinity for uh, Russia uh, with, you know, very good reason. That issue will certainly come up in during this state visit because uh, the Biden administration has been hoping to wean India off of Russian weaponry, um, and we'll likely see um, major arms purchases for uh, U.S.-made Reaper drones. So, Jerry, going into this meeting between Modi and Biden, what are the stakes for U.S.-India relations? Well, I think we're basically uh, on the precipice, I think, of what could be a new era um, in terms of U.S.-India relations, and it's important really for both countries. The dream scenario for, from the U.S. perspective would be that India could be considered sort of a close military ally. I think we're still um, a far ways uh, from, from getting there. 
But I think that, you know, under Prime Minister Modi, uh, there has been signs that India is increasingly willing to participate in intelligence sharing with the U.S. Uh, about China, uh, that India is willing to grant um, the U.S. military incrementally more access to its um, shipyards uh, and its bases. And of course, you know, the stakes in this are tremendously high because the government in Beijing has repeatedly warned um the U.S. Uh, against what it calls the formation of a, of, a, of a NATO in the East, in the Pacific. So, Jerry, why is President Biden so eager to court this leader who has been heavily criticized for the way he's treated minorities in India and handled some of the domestic politics back home? Sure. I think, you know, Rana, there's definitely tension there. We have heard some of President Biden's uh, senior national security advisors, officials on the National Security Council, say that the U.S.-India relationship is the most um, important bilateral relationship uh, in the world. Simply because it simply will be impossible for the U.S. to be able to carry out its um, uh, uh, effort to uh, contain and challenge China's rise without having India on its side. And so I think, you know, as long as uh, U.S.-China relations remain tense um, and competitive, um, I think you can expect uh, the U.S. to continue rolling out uh, the red carpet for the Indian leader, whoever it may be. What are Modi's ambitions for India as a, a world superpower And how has he positioned the country amongst countries like Russia? Well, you know, Prime Minister Modi, he has um, definitely sought to um, boost India's economic competitiveness, uh, first of all, right? So, uh, you know, we're kind of entering a very interesting um, phase of this three-way dance between the U.S., uh, China, and India, in which over the last, I would say, 24 months or so, we've seen... Um, you know, a steady diversification from major U.S. companies such as Apple in terms of spreading out their supply chains, pulling it, some of that out of China and putting it in India. And so recently we've heard that the newest iPhones uh, will be uh, built in uh, southern India. Uh, We've seen the Indian government and along with the U.S. announce plans to develop India as a major manufacturer of semiconductors, which obviously is another strategic industry. And so this is also an economy that will likely surpass Germany's in size in in the next decade or so. So, Jerry, you're an American living in India, covering India. What parallels do you see between the two largest democracies in the world? That's a great question. I think, you know, often um, when I sort of look at the the events happening in India and the U.S., I think that one is kind of a sort of a, a somewhat gloomy preview of, of the other. And, and in many ways, you know, they really kind of um, share a lot of common traits. Um, you know, when, when I look at the, um, I think, the polarization of the politics, um, I think, you know, when I look at the, the level of political discourse, when I look at sort of how the win-at-all-costs style of politics and how that affects governance, I see a lot of 
uh, commonality between the two countries. Um, when I turn on the TV um, in India and see sort of um, the primetime debate shows that basically just have a lot of, um, you know, shouting and, and, and for the purpose of political point scoring. Why does it stand? Why do you want to stand? Why don't you stand up for Janakaramana? What's your problem with it? Why can't you stand up for 52 seconds? Why can't you? It reminds me a lot of, you know, what I would see um, on, on cable TV in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, there is, uh, I suppose, there's been a lot of hand-wringing in the last, uh, I would say, you know, decade or so about sort of the state of democracy around the world, the health of democracies around the world, the the strengths and weaknesses of these of these systems, and and I guess you know I've seen both the 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 positives and the negatives in both the U.S. and India, um, and personally, it is something that 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 gives me pause and, and is a cause for concern. Jerry, thank you so much for sharing your reporting. Of course. Thank you for having me, Rhonda. Jerry Shee is the India Bureau Chief for The Post. He spoke with my colleague Rhonda Colvin. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Tanya Chavla and edited by Monica Campbell. It was mixed by Sean Carter. If our show helps make your world feel a little bit bigger please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work we do, and you get access to this kind of deep, urgent reporting from all around the world. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe to learn more. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The Washington Post.